The Genesis Foundation approaches its 20th anniversary, and during those 20 years it has played a major role in the lives of hundreds of musicians, actors and artists in the UK. The playwright, producer and writer David Lann was artistic director of the Young Vic in London from 2000 to 2018, and while there he launched the Genesis Directors Programme, which embraced the Genesis Fellowship, Genesis Future Directors Awards and the Genesis Network. His recently published memoir, As If By Chance, Journeys Theatre's Lives, covers his overhaul of the Young Vic and his life producing all over the world. His guest on this podcast is the poet and educator Roger Robinson, whose collection of poems, A Portable Paradise, won both the T.S. Eliot Poetry Prize in 2019 and the RSL Ondaatje Prize in 2020. Recorded during lockdown, they spoke via video call. How are you? How are you doing? I'm fine. How are fine. You? Yeah, ready for COVID to be over, but I'm fine. <laughs> yes, ready for COVID to be over. <laughs> How's it going to affect your artistic life, your writing life? Is it already? Are you writing differently? Are you writing less? Are you writing more? I think I'm writing consistently. You know what I'm saying? I don't know about more. I think there's a certain amount of poems I get through a week and um, because I'm with a group of other poets who produce a certain amount of poems a week. So I'm in the middle of writing a book. And so with us and a few of my friends, writing a book is really about just getting drafts up, get the idea up and out. It's not whether it's good, whether it's done. You know what I'm saying? So so the idea is to write like 150 first drafts or something by the end of the year or, or by, by the mid by mid next year. And so I've been doing pretty good. I've been getting my weekly my weekly poems out. How many poems do you write a week? Two. Every week consistently? That's amazing. I'm not saying good poems. I have two good poems every week. You know what I'm saying? But just like first, first, first drafts of ideas. It's a, it's a it's a easier way to see like what themes are evolving and where you might want to go with it and what you might want to highlight. And then you know, and after that 150, you really assess like what's a caucus of poems that may have good ideas. What are ideas you could stretch it with? So I'm I'm on I'm on course. Well, that's great. That's great. That's, that's great to hear. Have you been writing? Yeah, I, I, I'm writing. I'm, I'm, I am writing. I'm writing every morning, but I, but I'm not writing poems. I'm writing a longer thing. You know, when I was a kid, when I was really young, I used to write poems, and I, I was thought to be quite good. I, I had a sort of as a as a schoolboy, I had a sort of reputation as a, as a poet, and I have this thing that I think. Because I'm quite old now, and I, I think before I die, I've got to get back to it. I have a sort of feeling that's what I should... That... What stuff do you write now? What type of stuff do you write now? Well, I wrote a... You know, during the time that I was running a theatre, I didn't write anything. I mean, I, I was a playwright for many years. It's what I was, and maybe it's what I am. I don't know. But, I mean, I, I lived for a long time as a, as a playwright. I've done various things, but... But but for a long time I wrote plays and the plays were produced and it's what I did. I did some work in television and I did some work in film, but but really I worked in the theatre. And then I got a job running a theatre and I did that for almost 20 years. And in, during that period I, I, I didn't write anything. I wrote 100 pieces with 400 words, 600 words like you do, right? But I didn't write anything of any, of any substance. And then when I stopped um, running the theatre two and a bit years ago, I, I just started writing, and I and it turned out to be a memoir that I wrote called uh, As If By Chance, which which was published in February this year. And then, I, but as soon as I finished that, I started writing something else, which I think I think I'm coming to the end of now, which is a which is a novel. But I never thought in my life I would write a novel. But writing poetry, that's the highest level of writing. 
I hate mm. to say, but I do agree with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, yeah, it's, it it's just, it's different, it's different forms too. You know, it's like, I, I would like to write a novel. I think some, some writers have natural instincts. And my natural instinct is for poetry, you know, but mm -hmm. I don't think I have as many natural instincts for writing novels. I've written some plays, and I, I think there's a link between the kind of systematic structure of a play and the systematic idea of a poem. You know, it's just like there's, there's, there's a crossover. What's uh, trying to show but don't tell. But I think novels is just, it's just a completely different beast. And I have somebody who's talking about putting a novel out for me and they'd like me to write a novel. But I think I, I, the most I could attempt is to attempt it in vignettes, as a series of vignettes that yeah. are linked. But I tell you what I think's interesting in this is that in writing a poem that I haven't written a poem for a very long time, but but in writing a poem, but it's like you're looking for a structure. You're looking for it's like you're looking for something as if it was already there. And in the looking for it, you create it. Or it's sort of like a looking for, right, isn't it? Um as if the, as if it were already there, but you've got to find it and you can look all over the place until, and then you find it, if you're lucky. an interesting idea. Writing plays, I used to think plays was like that, but structure is everything. So I've written two libretti for operas, and there you go, this is structure, this is just about structure. This, this happens, and then that happens, and then it ends. And I found, I mean, I don't know whether my novel is any good at all, I've no idea, maybe it's no good at all, I, I don't know, but... But what's been interesting about it is is the same thing is looking for the structure which will which will carry the weight. I mean, I like the idea of you know of something revealing something that's already there. My view on it would be to reveal the invisible, you know, bring it to light, because as you say, it's already there. But check it; it's the revealing of it. Just like this is the want of, of a better way, a want of a want of better words the spiritual projection of not just you, but of many people. And I think poetry acts as a kind of uh, a spiritual projection. I always say poetry is a form of writing that actually has a spiritual component. And some people really disagree with that because some people are just on the craft. But craft without spiritual component, a spiritual component for me is a sense of putting drawers into a chest of drawers. You know, it's just like, okay, you're just functioning with the craft of it, but the craft is not leading to any uh, kind of emotional or spiritual movement. You know, like poems to me have to rouse something. If not, why are you doing it? And that's a very that's a very firm camp that I come from. But then they have people that are just like it is a craft. Your poetry, what I know of it, it's very it's very personal, but it's somehow more resonant. You're not speaking for other people, but it somehow feels representative of, of a, a community is too strong a word, but, but of, a, of, a, of a group, maybe, of, of, a, of a, collect, a collective voice, maybe. That's, maybe that's the best. I don't know. In the case of T.S. Eliot, it's like the real calm, meditative state. I mean, lots of people don't necessarily understand what four quartets is actually about, but what you do understand is the kind of spiritual underreeling, spiritual um, reel that it rests on. And it comes through in terms of the kind of meditative stuff. It comes through in terms of the way he uses, uses rhythm, the kind of things he talks about. And I saw a film about T.S. Eliot the other day, and it was, it was very interesting. He was a part of a church, 
and he'd go to church every single day before going to Faber and Faber. Every day, at 6 o'clock in the morning, he'd be there. That kind of made sense to me. It might not be a, a popular view that there was some spiritual underpinning to it, but I got it from it. When I read Ted Hughes, I, f I feel like there is a spiritual underpinning of this. Now, the spiritual underpinning might not be the same spiritual underpinning I'm looking for, but I can feel it. And then, you know, they have people who, like, if you read, I mean, I consider him a poet, but he kind of put out a, a novel, Max Porter, and how he references Ted Hughes. But then the book itself has a spiritual underpinning to it. And, and I can't describe it. It's not religion. It's not a specific religion, but there's something underneath that moves the spirit. It's very interesting what you say, because there was a certain kind of work that I wanted to have on a stage, that I wanted to produce on a stage. And how do you distinguish between that and the work I didn't want to have on a stage, or which I didn't think was good enough, or I didn't think was good? And, and to find the language to describe why something is greater than itself, that it speaks in a different way, in a more resonant way. You could call it spiritual. People use the word in so many different ways, but I suppose the meaning is that it conveys more than it says. It resonates in unexpected ways. But when I was running a theatre, I used to say, not I didn't say this often, but I, and I suddenly used to think it, that I tried to run the theatre as if I was writing a poem. It was my poem. It was my poem. I mean, I think about this a lot now because... Because with people expressing in a way that they do their dissatisfaction with the way in which culture happens in, in the UK, in England, and people's powerful sense of being marginalised or even excluded from it, which is true. And this big rethinking happening now is great. I mean, it's necessary. It's way, way beyond time that it should have happened. And it will make everything better and, and more complex and more interesting and more full of contradictions. And it's all really, really good. And I completely support it and I'm behind it. However, there, there was something the other day with a, a young director who I know, I know quite well. I used to run this um, project for directors at, at the Young Vic, um, supported by Genesis, Genesis Directors Project. And I, I got to know a lot of younger people who wanted to direct. But, but you know, this guy was saying... He really wants to know how artistic directors choose the, the directors they want to work with. And, and it ought to be democratic and they ought to advertise and then people can apply. I get it. The choice of who I work with was the most personal thing. And I work with a lot of younger people and I had a lot of people I wanted to give a break to in one way or another. But I felt somehow the decisions about what is the way we speak to an audience... It's, for me, it's got to be like writing a poem. And if, and if it's not a good poem, then that's my fault. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I do to some extent. I mean, I used to be a programmer for an organization for Apples and Snakes. My approach, because I, I hadn't had that demo, democratic thing leveled at me, but I instituted it for myself. But ultimately, they had several rules by which I went by when I was a programmer. One, I want to introduce new people to a stage. So without pay... I set up basically auditions for anybody who wanted access to me to see them. And for two weeks, I held auditions, and it was ultimately a lot of dross. And after two weeks, there were clearly three or four people who I had overlooked, who I wanted to bring to the stage. The second thing I wanted to do was to make it harder to get on the stage. My intention was not to make it easier. My intention was to actually make it harder 
for you to get to that stage. So I wasn't democratizing the stage in any way. What I really wanted to do is raise the standard. What I did was I also set up for disabled people, deaf people, people who were not represented within what I was doing. And this is no way to virtue signal. I'm just telling what I did. Yeah. I consulted with people and went to look for them. And a lot of them, interestingly, were not good enough to get on the stage. So I was like, cool, they're not good enough. But that doesn't mean that they are not, there's not a lot of talent that I can develop to get good on the stage. So I set up a program to develop the people with a means to getting on a hard stage to get on. And so within that context, I didn't put anybody on the stage who I put on just because of their disability, just because of their race. But I made sure to look for people who could be developed to be as good as everybody else on there and also the people who was who were as good as everyone. And I think that was different. I don't think it happens at Apples and Steaks now, but it was because I came from a certain intersection of diversity and decided that this is how I'm going to be. I want a lot represented, but I want the standard to be really high. I think yeah. to some extent what people face is just like they don't want to put somebody on because of race. And they say it's not my responsibility to put someone on a stage because of race. They have to be good. But then what you have to do is make up for the social reasons why they may not be good and develop that and create a situation where that can be developed. Because the fact that there are not many good people who you are finding means that there's work to do in development or there's work to do in research to get the people who are your taste who are not represented. And that's just a personal opinion. I go along with that. I mean, the, one of the ways I used to do that is just by seeing a lot of work. I, I used to, I never wanted to say no. If somebody wanted to talk to me, then I would go, yeah. I used to have a little t a table in the, in the, in the new theatre after we rebuilt the theatre. I had a table. And I would meet any, um, anybody. Anybody who wanted to come in, I, I would meet. But I, I go and seek a lot of work. But, but what I think sometimes people miss is that, uh, yeah, you go and see work and some you think, I can see that it could be good or that it is good, but I don't know what I can do with this. So somebody else will need to pick it up. If I said, okay, we'll go with this person. And I was very keen to have the widest range of people, people of color, black people, people from wherever. I mean, we work with people, unlike almost any other theater in the country, we work with people from all over the world. But then I said, but I, my responsibility is to make sure that the artist comes out of this experience stronger than they went into it. That's, that's my job. So I've got to do the work to make sure that it, whatever it is that they're doing is really good, but is really good in the way that that particular artist wants it to be. Not, it's not my, but not what I would do, but... I think, um, I think, I think the, the question is, so you've obviously been doing this type of work before. Are you feeling the imposition that now there is an imposition that you have to act a certain way as opposed to that goes against your taste, like if you were running the theatre now? But I've worked in theatres all my life, really, and you keep changing and growing, I hope, and, and discovering new things. And, and um, it's, somehow, if you take responsibility for it... I mean, I used to say, look, if it's a success, it's somebody else's success. If it's a failure, it's my failure. I mean, you're inviting people to come and spend time with you. It's like it's a personal thing. It's a, but if it, if it works at any level, 
then it belongs to it belongs to whoever it is. But if it doesn't work, then then it then I got it wrong in some way. It's wrong. I didn't look after it well enough. It wasn't the right subject or, or whatever. So I mean, no, it's just you 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 sort of meet the world. You try and meet the world as it is. You can't hide from it, and I wouldn't want to. I mean. Uh, the reason I'm not sorry I'm not running a theatre now is because the challenges of uh, the financial challenges are so huge. But in terms of the cultural change, and um, Black Lives Matter, the, the the somebody was telling me the other day on one of these zooms that she'd been talking to Angela Davis, and she said Angela Davis had said to her, "Look, this new wave of Black Lives Matter, this this resurgence." has been in the planning, has been in the works for a long time. It didn't come out of nowhere. It's organising, I mean, which is very interesting. I mean, having that amount of foresight to be ready for the moment. But the virus, to some degree, provided the moment, I think. I mean, the the great George Floyd moment, the world has seen that kind of violence many times. But that combined with the level of attrition in black families across the States, across the UK. But they were ready for it, and that's, um, that's impressive. Let me go back to the idea of taste. In my opinion, uh, and I'm just talking as a programmer, I often had to, in order to increase diversity, I had to understand, for me, that my taste may lead to an invisibility of different so let's say disability. So with the deaf, there's no way I could be judging a deaf show because I'm not from that culture. And there's no way that I could look at it and say like, oh, actually, this is not as good as other things I'm putting on. And it's very different financial pressures that were on my Apples and Snakes. Apples and Snakes was the art council funded body. So they're very different financial pressures. So let, me, let's, let me just get that out there. But I realized that if I was to say well, I expect the deaf performers to come up to my taste, then they wouldn't have any deaf shows. And it wasn't really my taste. It was, is this person a leader within their particular subculture? Are they popular? Are they liked? Are they what you call, not my taste, uh, in their subculture? Is this, is this a situation? So when I put on the deaf shows, one of the first things they said to me is like, well, you can't come because you, you can hear. And it's a deaf only. And at first, I could feel myself kind of bristling, like, yo, I'm programming the show and I'm paying for everything, so I can't come now. And I could feel myself bristling. And then I thought to myself, but of course, because you're giving over the space to them. And part of it is they having, they having deaf uh, people working on the door, deaf people working on this. I'm talking about, this is early 90s, you know? The, the deaf community were very, very politicized even back then. And it, it became clear to me that I cannot, make my judgments because my background in taste does not allow me to make this judgment in a plausible way. In a similar way, I was trying to get a lot of Asian performers, uh, East Asian performers and, and Asian Indian performers. And so a Punjabi rapper would not come up to my standard or what I was looking for from a rapper being from the black community. And I realized that I cannot judge it. In this Punjabi community, this person is revered. Who am I to decide that my taste must define the space that he's in? And with the subcultures, with, with the financial pressures that I had on me, I tried to get the best in the subculture. It wasn't really about my taste. It was about, can I program the best in each subculture for these cultures to have? And then I started to mix up everyone. 
So it wasn't just an Asian only show. It's like, okay, I'm going to have an Asian performer on with a dis- disabled rapper. The deaf people only wanted to have their own to themselves, and that's and that was fine. But along with white poets from Penguin, or along with novelists from Faber, because then I thought, actually, I'm nearly ghettoizing it, and this is something I had to learn that even with good intentions, I was making a mistake, and it was a learning process. And I had to take everything, not as critique, or not as pressure. I had to take things as feedback. So the kind of thing, so, so I'd always ask for feedback. I always ask what I could do better. To be honest, it was probably Apples and Snakes most fruitful period of time financially, because diversity actually makes financial sense. What people can uh, leverage towards someone who says, I cannot go against my taste, is that your taste is very specific and creates invisibility for other artists. And that if you want some type of democracy or diversity within the context, then your taste might stop that diversity. I struggle, I struggle with, with what you're saying a little bit because I guess I want to be able to experience the Punjabi rapper like the Punjabis do. But I understand what you're saying. I mean, I watch some cultural performance and you just go, I just don't get this. I don't get this at all. I mean, you talked a, a moment ago about, about T.S. Eliot. I mean, Eliot's work is so esoteric in so many ways. I mean, it requires... He's writing for such a... Really, for such a... In fact, his work is very popular because it's... Uh, I mean, not popular like, like um, Roger McGough or like, uh, you know, really popular poets like, like Workman. But... It still sells, but you know you need the footnotes to know what the hell he's talking about and what the references are, and it's really written for people who come from a particular culture with a particular level of classical education and, and so on, and not just Roman or Greek uh, classics. It's um, uh, Hindu classics and, and and so on and so on. But we can go there. We can we can find our way into that. I mean, the the four quartets that you mentioned. That's a very in order. I mean, I think. I mean, I'm I'm not there with it. I mean, I've been reading it all my life, and I know I'm not there. Um, but I'm getting closer to it. And that's a very subtle and complex piece of work, isn't it? Um, and I I I like to think you can. If you put the work in, if you want it, you can, you can get there. Uh, so my friend, my friend Malika Booker, she went to the single Kave Kana, which is a writer's retreat for black writers. And so you have to critique somebody else. And so what you couldn't say anything is that it's experimental. I don't get it. It was responsibility of the listener, yeah, in this particular yeah. camp to yeah. go and find out what are the strands that I needed to know to understand this and be able to critique this person from a point of knowledge, as opposed to, I don't get it, I can't tell you anything about it. Yeah, I always found that particularly interesting. What I also find particularly interesting is how far many programmers in theatre, poetry, are willing to go with a particular culture and not with other cultures. And so that increases the invisibility of black performers too. Because black performers, if they don't use Greek myth or, or Roman hymns or, you know what I'm saying, like, or, or religious hymns and stuff like that. So, 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 so T.S. Eliot, people do insane amounts of work. Whereas with other black poets, you end up with an invisibility because they're not prepared to do that type of work in another culture. And that creates a structure of invisibility. And that's a problem. I'm not talking about you, right, David. I'm just talking about it's an interesting thing. No, 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 no. I, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I hear you. And so, but and, it's, yeah, yeah. And it's an interesting thing. 
who's willing to do work in what. And to some extent, it does come down to a kind of tribalism. It's like, I'm really ready to do this work here because this, this work feels more within my tribe. There's more or less that I need to do. So what I'm talking about in Apples and Snakes, uh, when I was saying, I was like, I was prepared to do the work outside of my tribe. I don't know anything about deaf people. You know what I'm saying? It's like, this is outside of my tribe. And I knew that diversity didn't just mean black to me. If we're not diverse across the board, then we're not diverse at all. Then that's just a racial yeah. politic. I get that. I mean, I mean, in terms of um, black work, whether it was American or whether it was UK or whether it was Caribbean, it was easier for me. I mean, I kid. I remember when that play, uh, and Brother Size turned up, I, I, I remember five pages into it, it's not a long play, but five pages into it, going, yeah, I, I, I want this. I don't know what it is. But I, I want this. And, and that would happen from time to time. You just go, yeah, okay, I recognise this. But I think China's terribly complicated how to, how to work with uh, Chinese people, theatre artists. I mean, for political reasons, because the country is so complicated and so full of contradictions. And, in, you know, the government there is so incredibly repressive. But there was a theatre company. I, I spent a little bit of time there. And it was a very distinguished theatre company run by a man called Lin Chao Hua, who had been working, he was quite elderly when I met him. He'd been working for 40, 50 years. And he distinguished in, in his country. But I just went, I can't. I, and I saw quite a bit of it. And I saw quite a lot of it on video as well. And he was very, very keen to come. I just went, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how I can say to an audience, this is the most important thing happening Today, this is the good reason for you to not do the 150 other things you could be doing tonight and why you should be here. I struggled with that. I, there were some younger people that I was very interested in and, and I was looking for ways to find the bridge. But with, with China, with, with Pakistan, even with India, I can really find it. With African countries, it was, I always find that much easier. I did some work with a fantastic uh, Rwandan you know, yeah, you just discover you discover things. I didn't know I didn't know you could make theatre like that. I didn't know you could do that, and um, and you find your way. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't think being a programmer or a director is being it's not a charity case. You have certain things to satisfy. You have an audience who might be yeah. white and middle class who you're also programming for. You have lots of things that you have to juggle. But what you have to what you have to think about in my my time as a programmer is like might lives be less, not in terms of just the development of the artists, might lives be enriched by the diversity of this anyway. And David Land's memoir, As If By Chance, Journeys, Theatres, Lives, is published by Faber. And Roger Robinson's collection of poems, A Portable Paradise, is published by People Tree Press. For more information about the Genesis Foundation and its partners, please visit genesisfoundation.org.uk.